Hello, everybody. You are listening to Understanding Christianity, a podcast hosted by myself. I'm Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct instructor at Colorado Christian University. I'm so thankful that you're listening to the podcast today. It's been a while since I've done a standalone podcast. There's been a lot of things going on just ministry-wise in the life of our church and ministry. And so I'm thankful that I have the time to kind of get away and address an issue that I would want to uh, address. I've been thinking about this um, in light of some discussions that have been going on on the internet, on Facebook, in light of the, the death of Reverend Billy Graham, um, traditional Southern Baptists like Leighton Flowers and others, William Lane Craig. There's just been this, uh, this conversation about what happens to those that have never heard the gospel. What about those who never had a chance to exercise conscious faith in Jesus Christ. And so there's been a lot of different dialogue going on. Um, I've watched some actual YouTube clips from people uh, that I was a little bit shocked of the views that they had. And so um, I want to address that topic on today's podcast. This is going to be probably a two-part podcast. And so today I want to just lay forth uh, some definitions. I want to talk about some of the common questions or objections or issues uh, that are on the table as far as um, how to handle or understand uh, this particular topic. And so what I want to begin with are giving three basically traditional classifications of how this question, this topic has been framed, how it's been understood historically. Now, there's probably more nuances and different aspects of this, but I want to just give the three big ones. Uh, the first classification is exclusivism. Um, exclusivism is what I hold to. I think it's what most Reformed people hold to. Um, it says this. Exclusivism is basically defined as this. No one is saved without personal conscious faith in Christ alone, which comes through the special revelation of the gospel. In other words, if a person, wherever they are in the world, does not exercise personal conscious faith in Jesus Christ, they are not saved. They end up going to hell and they are judged accordingly. That's exclusivism. Now, there's another view called inclusivism. Inclusivism. Now, inclusivism says everyone who obeys or responds positively to the general revelation they have based on creation and conscience are saved through Jesus Christ, whether they actually repent or believe in Him or have conscious faith in Him. And they may be saved without even knowing about who the historical Jesus of Nazareth is. And so a person's faith in general revelation is enough to save them. And there's a third view called pluralism. Now, I don't want you to confuse inclusivism with pluralism. They are two different things. Inclus evangelical inclusivists actually believe that a person is fa saved through faith in the merit of Christ, in what Christ has done, whether they have conscious faith in, it, in Christ or not. Now, pluralism, on the other hand, the third major classification, pluralism says everyone who obeys or, or responds positively or adheres to their particular religion is saved. 
For each religion supplies an independent road to ultimate reality. In other words, um, if you're a sincere Buddhist and you've never heard the gospel, but you're sincere in your Buddhism, you'll go to heaven for being as good as you can with Buddhism. If you're a sincere Muslim, if you adhere to the tenets of Islam, the same thing. Um, So basically the issue is, are you sincere in whatever religion you hold to, pluralism, basically all paths lead to God. I want you to be very clear, that is not what the doctrine or the belief in inclusivism teaches. Inclusivists will still say that it is faith in Christ, but what they will argue is that general revelation is a sufficient means to save a person who's never heard of Jesus or placed conscious faith in Christ. So let me give you an example. Uh, William Lane Craig, a very popular apologist, um, identifies as a Southern Baptist. If you go listen to a YouTube clip, you can find this on YouTube. Just Google it or YouTube it. Uh, William Lane Craig, I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing what he said in this video clip, but he says basically those that have never heard are judged on how they responded to general revelation in nature and in conscience. And he said that the benefits of Christ's work are applied to that person even without their conscious knowledge of Christ. If a lost person who's never heard of Jesus, based upon the conscience, based upon creation, um, cries out to God, they admit they don't live up to the demands of God's law, they fling themselves at the mercy of God, they ask and plead for forgiveness, he says that person would be saved by grace through faith in Christ even though they had no knowledge of Christ. Now here's my question for William Lane Craig as I was listening to that. My question is, is there such a person in the world who would actually do that? Is there such a person in the world that's never heard of Jesus, that looks up at the heavens, that looks at the conscience in their heart, and actually positively responds to that light by crying out for mercy to God? Does the Bible teach, or is there such a person that does that? Now, William Lane Craig says, man, I hope Aristotle gets into heaven. I hope there are people like that. Now, one good thing about what William Lane Craig says, he does make a concession. At least he concedes that if you take Romans 1 seriously, he says there are not many people like this. But he does say it's a possibility. It's available to them if they respond positively. Again, this is a speculation that if there's such a person that could be possible, he says, probably not many people like this. So again, he's making a speculation. And so that's, that's one view of inclusivism. Uh, the, the, the evangelical inclusivism that says God will save the person that responds positively to that light, whether they have conscious knowledge in Christ. Now, there's another stream or another nuance to evangelical inclusivism that many, I found out, kind of shocked, Southern Baptists hold to. Paige Patterson, president of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, I would have to say holds to this. Robert Jeffress, pastor of First Baptist Church, Dallas. Charles Stanley, First Baptist Church, Atlanta, Georgia. These are very well-known Southern Baptists along with Leighton Flowers, a traditional Southern Baptist, who holds to 
what I would call an evangelical inclusivism. And let me define that. They, they have some assertions. Um, they, they would say that God reveals himself to those who genuinely seek him. So if you are a lost person, you've never heard the gospel, if you genuinely, sincerely seek after God, God will give you more light. God will, in a sense, reward that seeking with more light. They will also say that God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. So God's trying to save as many people possible and that God does not want lost people uh, or people to be, to be lost. He wants people to be saved. And so basically what they're saying is, is that if a person... So, so let, let me give you the difference between William Lane Craig and these other Southern Baptists. William Lane Craig's view is that a person... There is a possibility for a person to be saved based upon the merits of Christ through their positive response to general revelation, whether they have conscious knowledge in Jesus or not. Now, the others, Robert Jefferis, Paige Patterson, Charles Stanley, Leighton Flowers, they take it a little step further. They say, yes, if a person genuinely seeks God, if a person genuinely responds positively to the light they've been given, then God will bring that person more light. That person will receive a missionary. That person will receive special revelation. Now, the issue that you've got to deal with is, okay, what does it actually mean to live up to the light you've been given? What does it mean to respond positively to general revelation? Okay, so there's some the questions that, that, that you have to answer when you confront this idea of evangelical inclusivism. Again, I'm not going to call them pluralists. They're not saying that all roads lead to heaven. They're not saying if you're a sincere Buddhist, you're going to be saved. They still believe it's, it's through Christ, but not personal conscious knowledge or faith in Christ. So what I want to address are three key issues, three key questions, maybe objections, uh, things that people bring up, or, or the three big issues, I think, that come up in this discussion. And so when you talk about the question, okay, what about those who've never heard? What's the destiny of the unevangelized? What's this whole issue of evangelical inclusivism versus evangelical exclusivism? What are, what are the issues on the table? So I want to address those. So here's, here's objection number one. Here's question number one. Here's issue number one. Okay, it could be stated like this. A person may say something like this. Well, God must not be fair. God must not be just in sending people to hell who've never heard the gospel or who have ever had a chance to reject Jesus. That's probably the biggest objection that I hear. Well, that doesn't sound fair. If they've never had the chance to hear, if, they've ne if, if a missionary's never gone to them, how are they accountable for something they never had a chance to hear? Obviously, um, God would send them to heaven, or God would make an exception because they never had a chance. And, it, and it can't, they can't be held accountable for something that they didn't have a chance to respond to. Now, there's a faulty assumption in this objection. Okay? This question has a faulty assumption that's underlying it. What the assumption is, is that a person goes to hell or they're condemned based upon the rejection of Christ in the gospel. 
So their objection is, man, if somebody's never heard the gospel and they never had a chance to hear it and they never had a chance to reject Jesus, that's not fair. Now, I can understand if a person gets the gospel and they reject Jesus, they're responsible for rejecting something that was given to them. Now, let me just challenge your thinking here for a moment. Scripture teaches that we're condemned because of our federal union with Adam and his sin, not because at some point we rejected the gospel. A person is condemned in Adam whether they hear the gospel or not. Whether the gospel has come to them or not, the starting point is condemnation, guilt. Romans 5.18 says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Because of Adam's trespass in the garden, because he is our federal head as the human representative of all the human race, when Adam fell, when Adam sinned, when Adam transgressed the covenant of works in the garden by disobeying God and eating the fruit, that led to condemnation for all men. In other words, all men are under condemnation because of what Adam did. So every single person is born condemned in Adam. So that's the faulty assumption is that somehow a person goes to hell because they rejected Jesus. A person actually goes to hell. A person's actually held accountable. A person's actually condemned because of their sin in Adam. Now, the second assumption is that, you know, there's a person out there that's never heard about God. Now, let me just say this. There is no such person on earth who has not ever received general revelation about God. In other words, let me say this, Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2 clearly teach that all people everywhere know about God. His eternal attributes are clearly known. They can have a knowledge of God through creation, through conscience. That's not the issue. The revelation is clearly revealed. The problem is that they have suppressed the truth about God. They've rebelled against God. And they became idolaters. So our condemnation or a person's condemnation is not based upon hearing the gospel of Jesus and refusing Jesus or rejecting Jesus. The issue that Paul brings up in Romans 1 is that a person's condemned based upon knowing God in creation and refusing to worship God. Now let me just read Romans chapter 1. Verse 18 and following. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's the key term there. They suppress the truth. They hold that truth down. Well, what truth are they holding down? What knowledge, what truth are they suppressing? Verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Okay, God is very clear. God's shown it. God's revealed to them this truth. God's revealed knowledge about himself. What is this? Verse 20, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they're without excuse. 
In other words, God has revealed himself in what we call general revelation through creation. You look up at the moon, you look up at the stars, you look at the oceans, you look at the mountains, and, and every person inherently, intuitively knows deep in their hearts that there is a creator. Now, they do not know that that's Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, but they know there is a creator. And what Paul's burden to show in Romans chapter 1 is, instead of acknowledging that creator, instead of worshiping that creator, instead of giving thanks to that creator, all people suppress that truth and unrighteousness. And they exchange the truth of God for a lie, and they end up becoming idolaters. They end up worshiping created things rather than the creator. And so this question about fairness, about God, you know, God's not fair for sending people to hell who've never had a chance to hear, that's really not the issue of inclusivism or exclusivism per se. The issue underlying all of this really is more about unconditional election and God's providence. Okay? I agree that humanly speaking, if we were just thinking in human terms, it's not fair for millions of people to live and die without ever having a missionary come to them or ever hearing the gospel of Christ. We look at that and say, man, that, that isn't fair. I mean, I grew up in America. I went, went to church. I had vacation Bible school. There's, there's Bibles in, my, in the English language. You know, in America, we have a privilege that some people don't. So, it, so humanly speaking, it seems unfair that for, for thousands of years, millions of people have lived in darkness, and they've never had an opportunity to even hear about Jesus. And yet, the Bible also teaches the reality that only the elect, only those who've been predestined, only those who've been given to Jesus by the Father will come to faith in Christ. And how will this come? Through effectual calling. And how does the effectual calling work? Well, the Holy Spirit glorifies the Son in special revelation and draws and brings the elect to faith in Christ. So the first objection is, man, this, is, this doesn't sound fair. This doesn't sound just. Why would God send people to hell for something that they never had a chance to accept or reject? And so the, the issue is people aren't sent to hell for rejecting the gospel. People are sent to hell for sin. Now, what's the issue, the second issue? What's, what's question number two? What's issue number two? Okay. Evangelical inclusivists will argue, like William Lane Craig and others, that general revelation, and when we say general revelation, creation, conscious, that is a sufficient, and that's the key word, sufficient means for saving faith. Whereas exclusivists like myself and most Reformed people would, would disagree, and we would say that only special revelation, i.e. the Word of God, the Gospel, and explicit faith in Christ, is sufficient for saving faith. So here's the point, here's the question, here's the point of contention. That, that the evangelical inclusivists and the evangelical exclusivists would argue, the point of contention. Here, here it is. If general revelation is insufficient to save, then what's the purpose of it? Okay, now some will argue it is sufficient to save. We would say, no, it's not, it's not sufficient to save. Then the question is, okay, what's the purpose of general revelation? If it doesn't save you, what's the purpose of it? Okay. Now, there's nothing wrong with general revelation. I mean, Romans there tells us God's make it plain, made it plain. It's clearly seen. 
God has communicated the truth about his nature. The problem is not in God's lack of ability to communicate. The, the, the issue is not that creation doesn't display the glorious wonders of Christ. That's not the issue. It's not the revelation that's the problem. The problem lies with the universal sinfulness of fallen people who suppress that truth and rebel against that revelation. Now, when you think about Romans 1, Romans 1 tells us what sinners should do with general revelation. What should have been the response of people to general revelation? That's what Romans 1 tells us should have happened. And you go to Romans 3, where Paul sums up his entire argument. So Romans 1, 2, and 3, Paul's building a sustained argument about the universal sinfulness of both Jew and Gentile who were under sin. It's universal in scope. And he gets to the climax in the midpoint of Romans chapter 3, and it talks about what sinners have done with general revelation. Okay? So let's just compare Romans 1 to Romans 3 because it's a sustained argument by Paul. Romans 1, 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Okay, when you look at Romans 1, 18, the word unrighteousness shows up twice. People have been unrighteous. Okay, go to Romans 3.10. What does Romans 3.10 say? As it is written, no one is righteous. No, not one. Okay, so there's a universal unrighteousness of people who should be righteous, but instead they've suppressed the truth. Romans 1, 19-21, we just read it, tells us that all people know about God as Creator. His truth is plain. It's understandable. You can look up at the heavens and know intuitively there's a creator. It's been plainly manifest, as the Bible says. But Romans 3.10 says, No one is righteous, no, not one. And then verse 11, it says, No one understands. No one understands. So the truth has been plain, but no one understands. Okay, Romans 1, 22. It says, claiming, or verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Okay, they did not honor God. They did not give thanks to God. They're, so, Sinners should have turned to God. Sinners should have given thanks to God. Sinners should have worshipped God. Well, what does Romans 3 tell us? Verse 11, no one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. They've turned aside. So instead of turning towards God in faith, instead of turning toward God in thankfulness, instead of turning toward God in worship, they've turned aside. They've turned away. They've turned away from their creator. Verses chapter 1, verses 21 through 25, again tell us that sinners should love and worship the creator. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, 
to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about, of God for a lie and worshiped and served the, create, the, the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. They worshiped and served the creature. So humans are supposed to worship and serve the creator. What does Romans 3 tell us? Romans 3.18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. So when you look at Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3, the burden of proof that Paul is making a case for is not that general revelation is sufficient to save or anywhere in that passage that God rewards genuine seekers with more light. You just read it at face value. The burden of proof on Romans 1-3 through is on the universal rejection and suppression of that truth, which leads to idolatry. So, so the, the, the burden of proof is on the fact that all of this general revelation does, it's, it's, there's no positive response to it. And men are without excuse. General revelation is enough to damn us. Now, here's a theological issue that runs through the Bible when you go all the way from Genesis to Revelation. God's purpose, so we're asking the question, what's the purpose of general revelation? Creation, conscience, looking up at the moon, stars, God's acts of creation. God's purpose in general revelation has never been for it to function independently. There is always special revelation that is needed to explain, interpret, and supplement general revelation. In other words, the Bible talks about the works of God. Okay, you think about the works of God, that's general revelation, the works of God. But yet the scripture has the words of God, the special revelation that interprets or supplements or explains the works of God. So judgment is in proportion to the revelation received and rejected. Okay, so there will be people who have received both special revelation and general revelation, and they rejected it. Okay, that's most people in America, let's say. You know that there's a God by conscience and creation, but yet you live in a nation where you've heard the gospel. You've got a Bible in your language. You have special revelation. Somebody's come and shared the gospel with you. Okay, if you've rejected special revelation, the Bible seems to say there's stricter judgment than the person who only rejects general revelation. Now, there are those, obviously, the Bible teaches in Romans 1, who suppress the truth and they reject general revelation and they will be held accountable. They're without excuse for rejecting general revelation. But here's the scary thing about it. Here's the warning to those in America and places where the gospel has full access. There is a stricter judgment awaiting a person who has received special revelation, i.e. the gospel, the word of God, preached clearly to them. They know who Jesus is and they reject that. Jesus talks about this in the gospel of Luke, in Luke's gospel. In Luke chapter 10, verse 12, listen to these words, Luke 10, 
12. Jesus says, I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day for Sodom than for that town. He goes to these unrepentant cities. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. In other words, those places that have received more... Okay, so Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah was a pagan city. Sodom and Gomorrah did not have special revelation. Now, God destroyed Sodom because of their sin. But yet Jesus went to these cities and proclaimed the gospel and healed and did miracles. And they rejected that special revelation of Christ himself. And so what Jesus is saying is if you, if you compare the judgment that Sodom's going to have on the final day that did not have special revelation, and, and those that did have special revelation, these specific cities, then there's going to be greater judgment on those that received the special revelation. It will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for you. Both will be judged, but the ones that received special revelation will be judged more harshly. Jesus indicates this at the end of the parable in Luke chapter 12. In Luke chapter 12, uh, verse 47 and 48, And that servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Okay, both servants there get a beating. But the one who didn't know receives a lighter beating. The one who did know will receive a severe beating. So many scholars look at this and say, okay, this gives us an idea about the difference in judgment as far as level or degree between those who have received general revelation and special revelation. The pagan in the deep, dark jungles of Africa who's never heard and rejected the general revelation, suppressed the truth and unrighteousness, did not worship God, did not, did not give glory to God, became an idolater. That person is a sinner condemned because of their sin, but they're also responsible for rejecting the general revelation. They will be judged. Whereas the person who had the gospel come to them, they heard it in their own language, they knew about Jesus, they had it given to them, and they rejected it. They too are sinners, but they have a stricter judgment because they rejected the special revelation. Now here's the key point that we need to think about. In all biblical accounts of conversion in the New Testament, okay, when people got saved in the New Testament, every person came in contact with a human messenger who gave them special revelation. We never see the reason lying in a person seeking or God rewarding that person. But what we understand is it's God's providential dealing in time with one of his elect to ensure they come to faith. So when Jesus says, the sheep hear my voice in verse 10, or John chapter 10, there's this whole idea that those that do come to faith, it's because they are among the elect and God will ensure that the message gets to them so that they will be able to respond to that special 
revelation. Okay, so those are the the first um, couple of issues there. Number one, this must not be fair for God to send people to hell who've never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we realize people are sent to hell because of sin. Secondly, well, what's the nature of this general revelation? Is, is general revelation a sufficient means to save? Uh, no, it's not. What, what we see in the Bible is that the burden of proof is upon the rejection of that general revelation. Well, let's get to the third issue, the third question. What exactly is the nature of saving faith? What is a faith that saves? Or how is a person saved? What is the object of that faith? Some people, the inclusivist, would say saving faith can be defined as a generic faith in the light you've received without Christ alone as its object. In other words, it's not conscious faith in Christ as the object of my faith. It's a generic faith in the light that's been revealed to me. Okay? And oftentimes what they'll say is, you know, there's Old Testament quote-unquote pagans who believed. You've got examples like Job, Rahab, uh, New Testament people like Cornelius or the Ethiopian eunuch. But what you need to understand is if you go back and read those gospel narratives, in the go- not the gospel narratives, but those narratives in the Old Testament, Job, Rahab, others, they were always responding to special revelation. It wasn't general revelation. It was never some generic undefined faith in some undefined deity. It was always in Yahweh and His covenant promises that were given to the nation of Israel through the Messianic promise and the sacrificial system. And here's a, here's a problem. Here, here's an issue. The big question becomes, can we draw a clear parallel between Old Testament believers and people like Cornelius and today's unevangelized? In other words, is it a one-to-one category? Are the Old Testament saints, if you will, in the same category as those today who've never heard the gospel. The Old Testament believers had faith in Yahweh and the covenant promises of Genesis 3.15. What is Genesis 3.15? It's the proto-euangelion. It's the, the first announcement of the gospel in the Bible. It was given to Adam himself. Adam was not saved without faith in the coming Messiah. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. That is a messianic promise in a coming man, God-man, who will be born of a woman, the Messiah, who would crush the head of the serpent. In other words, would redeem his people. And you also think of Abraham in Genesis 22, where God provided a ram in the thicket. All throughout the Old Testament, those that believed in, were given the special revelation of Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it was also faith in the Genesis 3.15 promise. And it was always in the context of the messianic promise as well as the sacrificial system. So it was always in special revelation. There is no biblical example of anyone saved through general revelation. Ask the question. Go through the Bible. Is anyone saved through general revelation? 
Now, what is the nature of this faith? When, when, when those use language like, well, they, you know, you've got to live up to the light that you received. You've got to respond positively to the light. What, what, what is this type of saving faith? Well, I've, I've heard the answers from some. So, so that's the big question I had. Okay, if it's not conscious faith in Christ as the object of your faith, then what kind of faith is it? What, what are you actually doing? How do you define it? What does it look like to have faith in something that you, that's not personal conscious faith in Christ? What does it actually mean when you throw this lingo out? You know, those that live up to the light they've been given, those that respond positive to the light they've been given, um, they'll be saved by, by living up to that light. And the big question I have is, okay, what does that look like? What does it mean? Because what, what is that type of faith? Well, here's some answers I've, I've seen from some. They'll say that this saving faith, quote-unquote, in general revelation is basically a spirit of thankfulness for what God has created and provided. Or it's ethical behavior to the dictates of the conscience. So they'll say, you know, it's not personal conscious faith in Christ, but it's a spirit of thankfulness. So if there's a pagan out there that's never heard the gospel and they look up at the heavens and they're genuinely thankful to God for rain and they're generally thankful and they're, 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 they're thankful and they cry out to God and they say, you know what, you've been generous to me through giving me rain, through my crops. I want to throw myself at your mercy. Please forgive me. Or they may say, you know, it's a person who lives up to the dictates of their conscience. They know right and wrong, and so they try to live an ethical life. And so that's the, basically the faith is, is the ethics. It's the obedience to a, to a moral code based upon the conscience in their heart. That's saving faith. Well, here's the problem with that type of speculation. There is not one biblical example anywhere of that kind of saving faith. Faith in the Bible always has an object. You see, that's the, that's the crucial thing here. It's not the faith that saves you. It's the object of the faith. Faith is the instrumentality. Faith is the means by where you, you cling to Christ. In the Old Testament, the object of faith was always Yahweh, specifically, and His covenant promise of a Messiah, through the Genesis 3.15 and the Abrahamic covenant and the sacrificial system. And in the New Testament, and now, the object of faith is always Christ. I want you just to imagine this. Remember what William Lane Craig said. It's probably not very many. Can, can you imagine a pagan, a lost person, in an unreached people group, who somehow gets afflicted by conscience, and then they cry out to God, please give me more light. Please help me understand you. Now, that could be a logical possibility. That's a logical possibility. You can, you can conceive of that logically as a possibility. But what ends up happening is some people have taken a logical possibility with no explicit teaching and turn it into an absolute actuality. Now, let me just give you a little bit of background. I, I go to India about every year, and we go into unengaged tribal areas where people are steeped into what I would call Hinduism and animism, I'm a mixture of that. 
In the larger cities we go to, it's, it's Hinduism, but out in the tribal areas, it's a combination of animism and Hinduism. Now, what's animism? Animism is a worship of ancestors. It's all about, like, you know, if you're, if you're dead, you know, you worship your, your dead uncle, and if you, you're always living in fear because he may come back and haunt you or curse you. And so there's this worship of your dead relatives. There's a lot of superstition. You steep that in with the, the Hinduism of multiple gods, and you have this syncretistic, weird amalgam of, of, of religion out in the tribal areas. And I've gone into villages, and I have clearly presented the gospel and I've clearly presented the gospel to people that worship um, the rocks. That worship. We went into one village where the people worship the mountain. And they worship the mountain god. And so it's inconceivable for me to think that these people that are steeped in animism and paganism and darkness, they're not looking up to God and saying, Oh God, thank you for this mountain. Thank you for this rock. I want to, I want to worship you. I want to thank you. Um, I have a spirit of thankfulness in what you've done for me in <coughs> providing for, for me and, and I want to worship you and I want to be thankful and, and I want to live up to the light you've given me. And what they've done is they've become idolaters. They've traded in the truth of who God is and they've worshipped a rock. They've worshipped a mountain. You see, the problem again goes back to Romans chapter 1-3. through 3. If you just look at the explicit teaching of Romans 1 through 3, not speculation, but what Paul's argument is in Romans 1 through 3, is that Paul explicitly teaches that no one, okay, it's universal, no one, and, he's, and, he, and he uses that language, no one has responded positively to general revelation. No one's asking for more light. No one is crying out in thankfulness. No one is worshiping God. Instead, what Paul's saying is all have turned aside. All have become idolaters. All have exchanged the truth of God for life. All have suppressed the truth. No one seeks God. No, not one. And so when you, you, you press them on this and say, listen, Paul's burden is to make this universal. This is a universal suppression of the truth. This is a universal no one is righteous. And, and, and I've talked to some of them and they'll say, well, that, that's, that's hyperbolic language. Paul doesn't really mean all there. He's just being hyperbolic. He's basically making a statement for effect. And the question is, is that Paul's argument? Is Paul just kind of being hyperbolic or is Paul systematically showing us a universal condition that all people are under sin and nobody responds positively to general revelation? You see, biblical faith, saving faith, always has a direct object. It's either Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the covenant promises of Genesis 3.15 and the sacrificial system that pointed to Christ, special revelation in the Old Testament, or obviously for us, it's Christ alone. You see, the problem with evangelical inclusivists is what they're doing is they're speculating about possibilities. William Lane Craig was very clear about this. I, he said, I hope Aristotle makes it in. I, he says, I think if you take Romans 1 seriously, there's probably not many. I hope. It could be a possibility. And see, when you basically speculate about possibilities or uncertainties, and then you make those into this is what God absolutely does. And, and that's the, the statements that are being made. 
dogmatically, if a person seeks more of God from general revelation, God will bring more light. That, that's, a, that's an emphatic statement. It doesn't say God may or may not. It's almost this idea that God is bound, God will, God must reward that genuine seeker with more light. But what I want to ask is, is this affirmed in Scripture? Do we see anywhere in Scripture that God actually does this or that God is obligated or, in fact, will do this? Well, what they will do is they will turn to Cornelius. So in Acts chapter 10, we've got the story of Cornelius. So let's just read about Cornelius and let's, let's ask some questions about him. And again, we have to understand something here about Cornelius. This is the book of Acts. And one of the hermeneutical issues when you relate to the book of Acts is you have to ask the question, hermeneutically, when you study Acts, is what happens in Acts normative or descriptive? In other words, is, it, is Luke describing what happened in a unique point in redemptive history the transition between the ascension of Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the church? Or is Paul giving to us normative things that should happen in all places and all times in, in, in Christianity? That's a question that anybody has to wrestle with when they're reading the book of Acts. Is it normative or is it descriptive? And so when we come to Cornelius, let's just ask some of these questions. So let's just read Acts chapter 10, starting at verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your arms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who's called Peter. He's lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel spoke to him, he departed. He called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Okay, so you've got Cornelius. And it says here he was a devout man. Okay, there's some description about him. He was devout, he feared God, he gave alms, and he prayed. Now, the question is, what category is Cornelius? Well, most scholars believe when, when it talks about him being a God-fearer, he was a Gentile proselyte. In other words, he was one who was attracted to Judaism and voluntarily went through the, 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 the rites and rituals to become a proselyte into Judaism. So he would go to the synagogue. He would hear the reading of the Old Testament scriptures. He would do a lot of the, the religious things required of a good Jew, like giving alms, praying to God, being a devout man. Okay, so let's keep reading because obviously Peter has a vision. Peter goes um, and... and, and and comes to Cornelius. Let's pick up in, in verse um, 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, 
But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he's Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone without water, or can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, then asked him to remain for some days. Now, in verse 43... Peter says to him, all the prophets bear witness, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So the argument then, okay, was Cornelius saved before Peter came? Was he accepted before God before he came? Was he genuinely seeking God and so God rewarded him with more light? Well, in verse 43... Peter tells Cornelius that he's not actually saved until he believes in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins. Now you go over to chapter 11 where Peter reports this to the church. And verse 13, um, he told us how he had seen the angel stand in the house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon who's called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved you and your household. So the angel basically tells Cornelius that he's not actually going to be saved until Peter comes because he's going to find out how he's going to be saved. So Cornelius was not saved until Peter came and preached to him special revelation about who Jesus is. So here's the issue. If Cornelius died before Peter came to him with the specific revelation, would Cornelius go to heaven? It's a big question. Was Cornelius responding positively to the light he had by giving alms, by praying to God? Was that uh, obedience to the revelation he had enough to save him? Well, obviously not, because Peter says you can't have forgiveness of sins until you actually believe in the name of Christ. And then the angel says in the reporting there in chapter 11 that uh, Peter will come and declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and your household. So Cornelius was not saved 
until he had Peter come to him with the gospel and Cornelius had to believe in the name of Christ. But here's the issue. People will say, well, you know, Cornelius is an example of somebody who lived up to the light of general revelation that he had. He was living up to the light he had. He was obedient. He was given alms. Um, he was, you know, he, he was obedient to general revelation. Therefore, he would have been saved based upon the general revelation he had. Go back and read the Acts account. Is Cornelius simply a man that only has general revelation? Is he a man that just looks up at the stars and says, man, there's got to be some type of creator? No, all the way through this, this is a special revelation. Special revelation. <clears throat> Who is Cornelius? He's a Jewish proselyte. He had been in the synagogues, obviously. He had heard the scriptures read. He knew the God of Israel, and he actually had an angelic visitation. That's special revelation. He was not some man who lived in total darkness and only responded to general revelation. Now, the scripture is very clear that Cornelius was not forgiven until Peter came and gave him the message of Christ. Now, what people will use with Cornelius is say, okay, here's a perfect example of a man who responded positively to the light, and so God rewarded him with more light by sending Peter. Okay, let me just give you the Calvinistic interpretation of this. Could it not be that Cornelius was among the elect of God and through the Jewish proselyte system and through the angelic visitation, these were God's preparatory means to bring to to bring Cornelius to faith. In other words, because Cornelius was among the elect, God ensured providentially in time that Peter would go to him and preach the gospel so that he would receive it. And so if you concede that there are people in the deep, dark jungles of Africa who've never heard and they're receiving dreams and they're receiving visions and they're receiving these types of things... Most missionaries will tell you that there's always a messenger sent to them to explain those things. And so I don't know what exactly what I believe about the whole dreams and visions and things going on in, in, in Islamic countries and things like that. It, it, a lot of empirical evidence. I'm not sure how that all works out. But here's one thing that I would probably say about all that. These are among the elect. Remember Jesus said all tribes, nations, People groups, there's, there's going to be representatives in, in, in Revelation chapter 5. Our understanding is that the means by which God calls the scattered sheep in the nations to himself could be a preparatory work of angelic visitation or things like in dreams and visions. But almost always there is a messenger who comes and shares the explicit gospel with them so that they have personal conscious faith in Christ. In other words, Cornelius was not saved by obedience to the general revelation. Actually, it was obedience to special revelation because in some sense, he had an angelic visit, visitation and the scriptures. The scripture is very clear. Cornelius 
was not saved until Peter came to him and told him the explicit gospel that he could only be forgiven through faith in Christ. And then we find out Cornelius does place his faith in Christ. So this is God providentially working out how one of his elect comes to faith, not the, uh, the opposite idea where Cornelius was living up to or being obedient to uh, the general revelation and then God somehow rewarded that, which I don't like that term. Somehow, anytime God, quote unquote, rewards somebody's work or somebody's seeking with more light, to me, that's works-based. The way we look at it is God is sovereign in salvation. God has his scattered sheep. God has his elect. And God can use different means to call those sheep to himself. Cornelius was one of the elect. And God providentially used Peter and angelic visitation and the, the Jewish proselyte system that Cornelius went through as preparatory means to bring him to faith, to ensure that because he's one of the elect, he would hear the outward call of the gospel through the preaching of Peter and the effectual call of the gospel through the Holy Spirit, and he would indeed infallibly put his faith in Christ. And so as we think about this issue, there's a lot of questions that need to be asked. And so um, on my next podcast, I want to go more in depth into this issue, I'm interacting with some, some comments made um, out on, in the blogosphere and on Facebook. But I, what this podcast I want to do is I want to lay forth some definitions. I want to lay forth maybe the three big questions that people struggle with, kind of show you the nuances between the different camps. And so I, hopefully this has been clarifying. Hopefully this hasn't created more questions uh, than, than answers. And again, um, I really appreciate you listening to the podcast. I'm thankful for all the listeners. I'm thankful for the email exchanges. Um, if you have a question or a comment or even a snide remark, uh, you can go to seancole.net. That is the Understanding Christianity website where you can get all of my contact information. You can check us out on the Facebook page, Understanding Christianity. Uh, you can get this on iTunes or whatever type of podcast feed that you get. But I ask that you share this with others. If you find this helpful, uh, share this podcast, share this teaching. Uh, we want to be a resource to uh, the church at large. And so thank you again for listening to Understanding Christianity. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May He cause His face to shine upon you. And until next time, would you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus? Jesus.